Hello, this is Gareth Tennant from Battling With Business. Thank you for listening to this second episode in our two-part series on Erwin Rommel. If you haven't listened to the first part, I highly recommend going back and listening to episode one. In episode one, we covered Erwin Rommel's experiences in the First World War and the interwar year up until 1939. In this second episode, we're going to explore his experiences and exploits in the Second World War and then draw out the lessons in leadership, strategy, tactics, and organizations. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back. Well, we we built this story about Rommel, brave, uh, tactically astute. He's come through the come yeah, charismatic. He's come through the First World War with demonstrable and dramatic success. He's written a book on tactics, which is considered to be now a, a seminal tome. We're now in 1939 and we're in Poland. Rommel is now a, a general mayor, general, major general, and he is assigned as a commander of the, and I apologize again, I'll get this wrong, the Führer Begleit Battalion which is tasked with guarding Hitler and his field headquarters during the invasion of Poland. Note, now all of a sudden, he is close to Hitler. He attended the daily war briefings, accompanied him everywhere, and he had the opportunity to start to observe the use of tanks and other motorized units. So you can see how these ideas start to come together, and that's kind of interesting. And then you see why he's close to Hitler. I, I don't know. That's I mean, I'm 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 sure I just didn't read that bit properly, but I think Hitler was I think I read somewhere that sort of Hitler was almost beguiled by the man. And even when yeah. he shouldn't have listened to him, when his other generals were disagreeing with him, he wanted it. I suspect his first world war action from another first world war uh corporal probably had an impact. So I think it was, I get the sense that it was his charismatic personality that Hitler was drawn to. And the, the relationship between Rommel and Hitler is this interesting one. Again, not a member of the Nazi party, but clearly for him to be in this sphere, there is some connection between the two. He's he doesn't think Hitler is an idiot. He doesn't hate Hitler. He doesn't disagree with what he's doing. He's participating. And this is this is kind of interesting. So we've it's very easy to get get become focused on the tactical success. And in fact, I think a lot of when people say Rommel, this fantastic, amazing general, well, they've read the bits of history that I've talked about. But then you get to this other bit, 1939, and a letter to his wife. He claimed that occupation by Nazi Germany of Poland was, quote, probably welcomed with relief by the inhabitants of the ruined city and that they were rescued. Well, that's an interestingly naive view of the world. You, yeah. he's, he believes in Nazism to some degree. He thinks he's rescuing people. Well, nobody talks about that. Everyone sort of says, well, he was involved in the Hitler plot. No, 1939, we are saving these poor people. As, a, as a, a junior officer from the First World War, um, you, you've already sort of mentioned the kind of similarity with, with Hitler as a, as a junior NCO from the First World War. 
Hitler was a huge believer that the German government and senior command had let them down. And yes. that was part of the anger and part of the needing to seek out what had gone wrong and that led to you know, Hitler using anti-Semitism as kind of the excuse for, you know, there must have been darker forces behind this and all of the conspiracies that led to the insanity that was, you know, Nazism. Did, did Rommel have a similar, you know, because he was a, a decorated war hero from a war where he's on the losing side, was was he equally as, I guess, susceptible to the conspiracy and, and therefore, although not a member of the Nazi party, somebody that wants to blame external forces, wants to believe in you know, the, the unity of, of Germany and, and possibly then leaning towards those kind of ubermensch. I don't know. I mean, um, th there's definitely cases of him being an outright racist. And so, yeah. you know, he, he talks about the fact he's angry that he's fighting the Indians because they aren't they aren't any good. I don't want to fight them. I want to fight real enemies. The idea that then he he goes east into Poland and says, you know, we're rescuing them. Bolshevism, of course, had been painted as this terrible spectre, not just in Germany, but in the rest of the West. So I, I can see that. Yeah. So he, he moves from um moves from Poland to France. And I love this story. This is this is direct quote from one of the history books. Before Rommel returned that evening to his new division, he called on his publisher in Potsdam and collected 10 copies of Infantry Greift. Um, I missed out the end at the end for his subordinates to read. This was one clue on how he proposed to use his tanks in the coming battles, adventurously like an infantry commander on a stormtroop operation. Years later, one corps commander, Schweppenberg, recalled a second clue, a snatch of playful conversation he overheard. Rommel asked Rudolf Schmidt, who had been his commanding officer in the 13th Infantry Regiment, in a loud stage whisper, tell me, General, what is the best way to command a panzer division? Schmidt growled back. You will find there are always two possible decisions open to you. Take the bolder one. It's always best. You've... You've you can you've got to love this guy, haven't you? You're like eh, all the military men are cheering. We're going to get in our tanks and we're going to take the bolder option and we're going to capture ten thousand people. So there's an interesting um, dilemma here, isn't there? Because we've literally about thirty five seconds ago said this guy's a deep racist, and now we're saying got to love this guy. He's oh. talking all the right talks about. You know, tactics. He's a proven, you know, brave hero, charismatic leader. Yeah. There's a there, there's a cognitive dissonance that is starting to appear. I I I can feel it. Uh, it's funny as you do the research and you start to put all these things together, you start to go, I like this guy, but he was the bad guy. And he was a bad guy for good reason. So you can see it. We're going to talk about this later. They made a film about him in 1951, six years after the end of World War II. There yeah. was a Hollywood film about the Desert Fox. What is that about? There wasn't a Hollywood film about Montgomery in the same way. Why is that? We'll come back to that. So anyway, I, I love these quotes because I get rather than 
Chris's poor history you get to hear from the man. Concerning the importance of offensive action, Rommel wrote, I found again and again that in encounter actions, the day goes to the side that is first to plaster its opponents with fire. The man who lies low and awaits developments usually comes off second best. This is a soldier's soldier, I would argue, at least in that tactical sense. Yeah. So following the invasion of Poland, um, he began lobbying for a command of one of Germany's panzer divisions. There was only 10 panzer divisions. So you had to be someone to be given the command of a panzer division. There wasn't many of them. And uh, he was promoted by Hitler instead of more senior officers. Interestingly, despite having been turned down by the army's personal office. So what we're saying here is the army said, we are not going to promote you. And we are not going to give you command of one of these divisions. And Hitler said, who's train set? Promote him. Give him that uh, armored division. So in France, <laughs> you're going to start to, this is the third time. And I, amusingly, I hadn't connected when I read all this down. In 1940, Rommel's forces took 10,000 prisoners, losing 36 men in the process. This is the third time he has done it. You yeah. don't do it three times by luck. He was starting to make people a bit nervous because they didn't know where he was. This was a guy who they gave a mission and they couldn't always find him. He was not necessarily always under that control. So they'd been really nervous during, during the attacks into France. He disappeared and then he does these great things. Uh, Knights Cross. So he's promoted again or given given this award again. Um, on 17th of June, 7th Panzer were ordered to advance on Cherbourg, where additional British evacuations on the way. So we all know about Dunkirk, but yeah. we never, oddly, we never talk about this. After Dunkirk, a large number of British troops were actually uh, evacuated from Cherbourg. Um, Rommel's division advanced 240 kilometers, 150 miles for the English on the call, on the, on the podcast, in 24 hours. That mm. is insane. Yeah. 150 miles in 24 hours. And after two days of shelling, the French garrison surrendered on the 19th of June. Um, the speed and surprise um, that he consistently was able to achieve um and to the point where the OKH, which is the high command of the German army, lost track of his whereabouts. And I love this. So his tank division, the 7th Panzers, they earned the nickname, the guess, uh, I'm going to get this wrong again. I should never have picked German words when I admitted I'm half German. Gespensterdivision, which, irrespective of my, of my pronunciation, translates as the ghost division. <laughs> Oh, I isn't, like that. Isn't that now? Let's be clear. This is a man starting to also build his own press. So Rommel's victories yeah. in France appeared in the German press. And in 1941, Sieg im Westen, Victory in the West, was a German propaganda film. Rommel personally helped direct a segment reenacting his crossing of the Somme River. And if I remember rightly, he got angry and said, no, film it right. That wasn't what happened. So this is a man starting to nurture his own reputation. So um, we, we, 
done an episode on misinformation and deception and the control of the narrative. Uh, and we've got, we talked all through that episode about the internet and social media and conspiracy theories, but this is the age of the radio, isn't it? And the, and the Hollywood film, or, or in this case, clearly a, a German film, but this is the age of you know, the starting of propaganda through electronic means, you know, radio, uh, and, and there are proliferations of little radios across the Soviet Union, across Germany, so that people can get their messages out. And I think up until now, everything we've talked about says this man is a great tactician. I would say this is the first sign that he's a great strategist. He's starting to link what he does day to day, the seizing of opportunities, the smashing of the enemy with artillery, the rapid advances with what what is going to happen in six months? What's going to happen in a year? What happens after the war? He's, this is an, this is the first in everything you've talked about, the first indication that he is also thinking strategically at the same time. I think that's true, but I'm let's let's keep going into North Africa because I'm I'm not sure. Okay. I'm just sorry. I'm sure about what you've just said. Yeah. Now, to the, whether he was a great strategist. So anyway, he sent to North Africa in 1941 to head up the Africa Corps, where in North Africa, the Italians who traditionally that was their area to play in had been defeated. Two German divisions. He also took a, a an Italian division, the Ariete division. Um, and he was involved of the defense of Tripolitania, which I believe is Tripoli, basically, yeah. or that yeah. area. And he was quoted, its main features were not a step further back, powerful Luftwaffe support and every available man to be thrown in the defence of the Surti sector, including the first German contingents as soon as they landed. It was my belief that if the British could detect no opposition, they would probably continue their advance. But if they saw they were going to have to fight another battle, they would simply not attack, which would have been the proper course. But they would first wait to build up supplies. With the time thus gained, I hope to build up our own strength until we were eventually strong enough to withstand the enemy attack. As a result, he pushed the British back 300 miles from this defensive line. In March, he was told no more reinforcements, but we want you to raid uh, a place called, uh, this is a terrible episode for names, Agadabia. And they said, go, go take that place and maybe Benghazi. In three weeks, they advanced 400 miles. This is a collapse of the British, British forces. And in the end, they didn't just raid a place. They captured five places in terms of Benghazi. And that really, actually, what's really been nice as we talked about this, you can tell all of these lessons pile on top of one another, particularly this notion of exploiting opportunities the moment they are presented to him. And yeah. I think that's something which is perhaps more tactical than strategic, but he's really good. Ken Kenneth Maxey in Rommel Battles and Campaigns, it is indeed almost incredible to read about Rommel's exploits at the time of the frontier raid. The catalogue of his narrow shaves and fluky escapades as he raced about the battlefield from one unit to another, 
frequently driving among the British produced a legend of invincibility more in tune with a dashing young subaltern from a boy's journal than a mature army commander. And at this point, all the young officers are cheering. And there's a couple of generals saying, wait, what did you do? Yeah. You, were, you were driving between. That's great. That worked great for you. You shouldn't be doing that. Fast forward to Arnhem and you've got British generals doing the same thing and very bad things happen because he gets captured or actually yeah. he doesn't get captured. But he, he you know, the, the British is. general gets stuck in a in a in a yeah. place he shouldn't be. So very interesting. It's the start of the Rommel myth. This is where now people are talking about Rommel. In 1941, spring 41, his name appears in the British media that we're talking about him. This is this is interesting. We're building his myth. Yeah. In the autumn of 41, an early winter of 41, 42, he was mentioned in the British press almost daily. Towards the end of the year, the Reich propaganda machine also talked about Rommel's success in Africa as a diversion from the Wehrmacht's changing situation in the Soviet Union. Then the American press began taking notice as they joined on length of December 41, writing, quote, the British admire him because he beat them and they were surprised to have been beaten in a turn, in turn, such a capable general. So there was there was a whole mythology around North Africa, wasn't there, where there was. There was a, it, it was seen as somewhat different from the other fights. Um and for no as far as I'm aware, and you might you might have detail on this, but for no explicable reason, the the nasty bad Germans that we were fighting in France, the were somehow honourable. They were honourable. They were, they were the knights day. of the sand. Yeah, and the, the North Africa campaign was sort of what it should be. This was you know, strategic opponents battling it out, battling wits rather than underhand tactics. Um, I think we're going to do an influence episode on Paddy Main at some point where we can obliterate that myth. But for whatever reason, Rommel and Rommel's forces in North Africa were seen as honourable. And, and to be clear, tell, they weren't really. Well, another one of these things we have to dig in. He treated, captured enemy soldiers well. He said they should all get food. Um, there were stories of him going to a first aid station and meeting British officers that had been captured and said, you're being treated well, you know, let's have a drink together. So I don't think that makes him a good German. I think that makes him a soldier who says, I'm a soldier. I'm here yeah. to do a job rather than to hate the enemy. But, but there are lots of stories about war crimes against native soldiers. There are. And, and there's... The, and and again, that plays into the Ubermensch kind of. It does, but then, then, then the British a... are honourable because they're white Europeans, and actually, I suspect, like Hitler, Rommel's probably slightly uh, regretful of the fact that we're at war with them rather than allied with them. He, th there's lots of discussion, and this I didn't spend too much time on, which is how much do you know about these acts? How much did he try to stop them? How much did he acquiesce? Mm. I can't say, but I just wanted to finish. We we talked about the fact that all of a sudden now in the allied press, he's being lionized. They're, yeah. they're building him up. General Orkinleck distributed a directive to his commanders, quote, 
seeking to dispel the notion that Rommel was a Superman. Isn't that fantastic? We're going like, stop it. He is not, he is not brilliant. You have to stop saying he's brilliant. So obviously, and, and this is the bit where everyone was expecting a long conversation about the tactical battles. Montgomery comes, Eighth Army, Second Battle of Alamein, all of a sudden he's beaten back. The one last thing I want to say about North Africa is I'd known a little bit about North Africa. If you look at the map and you hear people talk about the battles, it really feels like what Rommel did amazingly well was to find an opportunity, pursue it almost to the point of destruction. He regularly ran out of ammunition. He went too far forward. He would capture fuel dumps. He would do things which on paper were very bad. So he was very good at exploiting those things. You know, we talked about 700 miles of taking things. But I get the feeling every single moment he could have failed. He was really pushing his luck. You've talked about him acting more like a... Subaltern. Tactical commander. Driving around, yeah. And you've talked about the taking the exploiting an opportunity, seizing the initiative right up to the edge of almost destruction. It sounds to me like he's he's still very, very tactical at a point where he should be commanding an operational war. And we've talked about before. This is the idea of you know, tactics is how you use capability to do things. Operation operational art, we did a whole set, couple of sections on it, is about how you enable that capability to be in the right place in order to achieve the strategic aims. And a, a, a kind of classic mantra is amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics. If you're stretching yourself to the point of running out of ammunition... Regularly. Regularly, not once. Yeah. Regularly. If you're driving around, you know, greeting the troops rallying tactical commanders before fights, maybe even, you know, being close to the fights, then you're not having the deep logistical conversations that require, you know, multiple armoured division logistics is really, really difficult. Fuel, ammunition, food, getting casualties back, uh, the defensive lines needing to be constantly adjusted, constantly checked. It sounds like he is playing a risky game, and the moment the tables turned, the moment an opportunity was seized and the initiative was lost, he probably didn't have the same operational experience as a defensive commander. I I think if you tell his story from the beginning, it was interesting, 10 minutes ago, you said, ah, this is the beginning of his strategic victories. His, you know, this is why... Well, I'm going to come back to that because I still hold by that, and I'll well, tell you why. Well, maybe I'm talking about operational art, operational art and military strategy. We'll come back to what I said a minute ago in a moment. That's that's fair. But but I agree with you. I I think. And and by the way, arguably in North Africa, he was eventually beaten by a well-supplied, well-thought-out, strong attack where those tactics are sort of the hit and run we're going to take advantage of things that just wasn't going to work anyway. So North Africa, he's now left North Africa brackets. The Germans lose in North Africa, close brackets. He's now in France. It's 1943. He is now the, the general inspector of Western defenses. So yeah, I think everything from the Loire river, Loire up to 
somewhere in Norway, probably. So the Atlantic Wall, isn't it? From Atlantic Wall. North, North Norway all the way down to, yeah. And, like, and more than that, it, it is the Western defences. But he, and so, is he looking just at the French sector of that? No, um, don't know. Don't know. But I do know he's now disagreeing with Hitler on military matters. Right. So Hitler's saying, and many of the generals are saying, we don't know where the uh, allies are going to land. We know it's coming. But what we do is we have a strategic reserve held back somewhere in France, and then wherever they land, we will defeat them. Yes. Once they've landed, we'll... And Rommel said, nope, we have to defeat them on the beaches. And so he did lots and lots and lots of work to improve the Atlantic Wall. And, and notionally, he did have a significant impact, although other people would argue the Germans just wasted a bunch of time, money, effort on large concrete fortifications that were frankly never going to be attacked, but differently. Let's fast forward now. We need to take a quick break now, but we'll be right back in a moment. Nineteen forty-four, seventeenth of July. Rommel is returning from visiting the headquarters of the First SS Panzer Corps, and a fighter plane uh, strafes his uh, staff car near Saint Foy de Foy de Montgomery. How amusing Montgomery! But there you go. Uh, the driver speeds up, attempts to get off the main road, but a twenty-millimeter round shatters Rommel's left arm, causing the vehicle to veer off the road and crash into trees. Rommel, thrown from the car, suffering injuries to the left side of his face from glass, shard, glass shards, three fractures to his skull, hospitalised with major head injuries that people assumed was almost fatal. So now all of a sudden Rommel is recovering and he is not going to be that frontline general uh, that, you know, in in uh, come Normandy, come D-Day, that everything's going to work. There is then the uh, plot to assassinate Hitler. And there is lots and lots and lots of debate about this. Um, I read just as many articles that said he was involved. And then I read other articles that said, well, he wasn't. He, wasn't he was sympathetic, but he wasn't involved. So some suggested he agreed that we should kill Hitler. Others suggested he thought Hitler should be arrested. So there's there's something going on there. And then I I think this is... And it's maybe... because by this point in the war, he is a... Because we talked about him being a, a soldier, soldier. Yes. Is he now, is now anti-Hitler or maybe that's too strong, but we don't know. But he, he wants the removal of Hitler, not because Hitler's an evil Nazi and the final solution but because Hitler's meddling with military strategy to the point where he's undermining the generals and they're going to lose the war. Rommel sends a letter to Hitler, quote, giving him a last chance to end the hostilities with the Western allies, urging Hitler to, quote, draw the proper conclusions without delay. Uh, you know, I, there's lots more there and I mm. don't know, but that could easily be a general saying, we are not going to win this war. Let's not kill lots of people unnecessarily. Yeah. Doesn't suggest that he thinks Hitler is crazy, but he is no longer 
the, gives his support to Adolf Hitler. Yeah. So all of a sudden, the not all of a sudden, but the um, the attempt on Hitler's life happens. The the sort of the von Stauffenberg uh, yeah. attempt, the, the famous film where he he puts a bomb in the at the, the table and the, the the table is blown up. Hitler walks out with sort of trousers in tatters, but alive. On the 27th of September, 1944, Gestapo agents are sent to Rommel's house in Ulm and they place him under surveillance. And then a little bit later, his case is turned over to the Court of Military Honour. It's a drumhead court-martial convened to decide the fate of the officers involved in the conspiracy against Hitler. And as you rightly said, you stole, you stole this from me, Gareth. 14th of October... General Bergdorf informs Rommel of the charges against him and offers him three options. You were exactly right. He could choose, to number one, he could choose to defend himself personally in front of Hitler in Berlin. And if he refused to do so, it would be taken as an admission of guilt. B, he could face the people's court, which would have been a death sentence. Or C, he could choose to commit suicide. And in fact, when Bergdorf came along, he said, here is a cyanide pill. Please go ahead and take it. As you rightly said, Rommel opted to commit suicide, went up to his wife and son and explained his decision. There's, there's a discussion here about this. I have decided I'm going to commit suicide. I'm going to go talk to my wife and son about this. Wearing his Africa Corps jacket, there's a man who, you know, songs were sung about him in North Africa, wearing yeah. his Africa Corps jacket and his field marshal's baton, gets into Bergdorf's car, driven by SF Stubbsfuhrer Heinrich Duz, and was driven out of the village where he took cyanide and uh, he, he died. Uh, the official notice of Rommel's death as reported to the public stated that he had died either of a heart attack or a cerebral embolism, a complication to the skull fractures he suffered in the earlier strafing of his staff car. To strengthen the story, because uh, Field Marshal Rommel, the hero of North Africa, the hero of Germany, could not be involved in the attempt on Hitler's life. Hitler ordered an official day of mourning and a commemoration of his death. And in fact, he was given a hero's funeral not in Berlin, because that would have been a step too far, but in all. So that yeah. was the end in 1944 of... So I'm going to go back to my point about him being a strategist. So I think we, we've we established he was a great tactician. I think we've started to unpick whether he was good at operational art. But my argument about strategy here is he played a good hand... And if he hadn't, if he hadn't cemented his reputation, then he would have just been executed and would have gone down as... Uh, it, whereas what's actually happened here is the Germans have decided that his reputation is worth protecting. Then the Allies decide that his reputation is worth protecting. And we are... 80 years later, still talking about whether he was a brilliant tactician. We're still teaching some of his ideas at staff colleges. Um, and he has, as you said, they made a film about him. 
Um, and he is still talked about as being, bear in mind, he was a field marshal under Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime, a regime that killed 9 million Jews, all the Gypsies, all of the disabled people, all of the persecutions and massacres. And he was a field marshal in that regime. And we still talk about him as the good German. So that for me is where he strategically was thinking about what's next. Now, the fact that he ended up having to take a cyanide pill, yeah, it didn't end particularly well for him. I love your understatement. It didn't end <laughs> particularly well. But better than being killed by a firing squad or hung. That's true. Reputation in tatters. And if, if that assassination on Hitler had been successful, or if that hadn't taken place, or if the war had ended by uh, Hitler... Yeah, these are all counterfactual histories, but a different outcome, he would have still managed to be the good German and arguably would have probably been part of the reconciliation, part of the the rebuilding of post-war Germany. Well, um, let's let's talk about that good German myth. By the way, I, I think I, I while I want to disagree, I think you're right in terms of how he did this. So let's Let's talk about this myth of the good German. So if you think about it, growing up, I didn't consciously realise Rommel, good German, other Germans, bad Germans. And that was no accident. So yeah, I don't know how many people uh, listening to this have seen the film, but in 1951, Hollywood made a film called The Desert Fox. Uh, starring James Mason. Actually, it's a really good film if you watch it. It, it. I remember watching it, black and white film, when I was very young. I have not watched it, but I will. We might, we might, have, we might have to watch that together and, and talk about that one. But just, just the simple statement: a Hollywood film made about a German general six years after the Second World War. What is that about? And of course, at the time, it was just an exciting film and it's stirring. And, you know, there's some good old Tommies that he respects and the Tommies. But but we went. It's I mean, it's, it's what you would expect. But six years later, at the end of the film, there is a voiceover of an actor reciting a speech from British Prime Minister Winston Churchill delivered to the House of Commons in praise of Rommel for his chivalry in battle his tactical genius and a courageous stance against Hitler. And then the credits roll. I don't, didn't remember that, but isn't that amazing? So why, why is that? 1951, we think there is a pretty fair chance we're going to have to fight the Russians. And we do not think we can be successful against the Russians without the German army, without the Bundeswehr. So this was a rehabilitation of Germans. It wasn't we want a good German and Rommel's a good German, so well done. It was, we need a good German because we need to be able to tell a story about how these potentially brave new allies fighting against this common enemy, the Russians. So fascinating that he accidentally gets caught up in this other, because if the Russians weren't there, who cares about Rommel? You know, he was a Nazi, probably we killed him, that's all fine or he died, it's fine. 
But he was, quote, chosen because he embodied the decent soldier, cunning yet fair minded. And if guilty by association, not guilty that he became unreliable. And additionally, former comrades reported that he was close to the resistance. See those words about, well, he might have been a German. Might have... That's interesting. Just as a final thought on that myth of the good German, there's lots written about this. Here's a final bit of um, trivia for you. There are three military bases in Germany named after Rommel, including the German army's largest base. It is named after Erwin Rommel. I did not know that. How interesting is that? We have named three of our bases after a Second World War general. Oh, and by the way, if you thought the Navy wasn't getting in there, one destroyer was named after Rommel as well. So isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? It's staggering, fascinating. And I think you talked about accidentally, but we've already talked about the fact that he he personally directed a scene in a film. Yep. He personally took copies of his book and distributed them to his staff. He is a man who I think, um, and, and again, we don't have the time machine. We can't go back. We can't witness it. We can't talk to him, but he's driven by legacy. Has probably um, a, I get the impression, an ego um, and a reputation to protect and ultimately managed to do that. So, so 80 years on, we are still discussing whether he was a good German. Well, um, let's let let's have a bit of fun just before we finish, which is, you know, let's we've talked about his tactical reputation and his impact on tactics. Um, Basil Littleheart, who was a famous uh, post-war journalist and historian, concluded that he was a strong leader worshipped by his troops, respected by his adversaries and deserving to be named as one of the great captains of history. By the way, Littleheart can be a little dubious when he's writing things about Germans, but that's that. However, um, a certain Adolf Hitler remarked that, quote, Unfortunately, Field Marshal Rommel is a very great leader, full of drive in times of success, but an absolute pessimist when he meets the slightest problems. Other historians, and there's lots of names, you can go do the search, said that at times in North Africa, his absence from a position of communication made command of the battles of the Africa Corps different. One of these historians lists Rommel's counterattacks during Operation Crusader as just one such instance where his inability to communicate helped cause his downfall in that battle. Another historian concurred, saying that leading from the front is a good concept, but Rommel took it so far. He frequently directed the actions of a single company or battalion. Again, it's this well, he was great like this, but it wasn't great like that. So I suspect there yeah. will be endless discussions about, uh, maybe put it a better way. If you did all the things that Rommel did, would that make you a great tactician? I would argue there is endless debates, probably in a bar, probably with a number of soldiers from different, with different perspectives, this could go on. So we've, we've, we've gone quite long on this one. Yeah. I, I just wanted to sort of finish off from my side, at least, with some takeaways and some sort of 
outstanding questions for me. He was clearly a successful commander in World War One and World War Two. You know, we have examples yeah. in Italy, northern France, North Africa. But for every success, it feels like he was on the verge of disaster, if not actual disaster. How much of this was luck and situation? How much of this was skill? Probably quite a lot of skill, but but I can't help get this feeling is he kept pushing his luck and it didn't always work. Surprised me how many people thought he was overrated. And his tactics seemed really effective right up until the point when they weren't or until he met a better supplied and better organized force. So that tactical thing, his men loved him. And he cultivated that image. And it strikes me, it helps if you have a particularly good PR team and you dress with goggles and a tartan scarf. That was his thing. That was how he was photographed. If you think about all of the generals that are household or maybe not household names, but are, you know, the famous generals, they all have their traits. So you've got Patton's steel helmet. You've got Montgomery's double cat badge beret. Yeah. You've got uh, MacArthur's corncob pipe. They are all cultivating the narrative and the myth whilst whilst they're there. And that's not to take away from their you know, operational or strategic it's Understanding the power of narrative, personal yeah, narrative. Absolutely. But I think there is, coming out from all of this, um, and, and it's been really interesting, there is a... Um, I was going to say paradox, no, a contradiction with Rommel. The same Rommel that refused orders or didn't carry out orders or didn't stop in Italy is the same Rommel who was a senior commander in North Africa is leading company and battalion attacks. So the junior commander who is being given or taking the freedom of initiative is stifling the freedom of initiative. Yeah, of that's commanders. a really, really interesting Later point. On. And I think for me, that is where he is clearly a brilliant tactical leader and is perhaps an overrated operational commander. I think I think that's a... I, whether we're right or wrong, it doesn't matter. I, I kind of agree with you. You know, then we think about his reputation. He was... We talked about this, a chival a reputation as a chivalrous, humane, and professional officer. And it struck me: does that make him good or partly good? So he, the, there was a famous Führer befell, an order from the Führer to kill commandos, and he explicitly gave orders his troops were not to kill commandos. So, you know, he's a good professional officer. He's a a good person in yeah. this. But there were you talked about there were lots of other atrocities. What what did he stop versus what did he acquiesce to? He's a racist, you know. I I actually wrote my notes. He's arguably a racist. Um, Vaughan Raspberry, another historian, wrote that Rommel and other officers considered an insult to fight against black Africans because they were considered they considered black people to be quote members of inferior races, but. Um, when he saw that they were fighting well, he gave the members of the 4th Indian Division high praise. Post-war, his image was important to NATO as it's part of rehabilitation of the Bundeswehr, the German army. 
but he loved Hitler. He was in that circle. He remember in the very beginning of the Second World War, he was the commanding officer of the, the, the Führer's protection detail, effectively. And even though he ultimately disagreed with Hitler, there's little evidence that he was the good German that people would potentially like to describe him as, or certainly in the 50s. You know, was he naive about Hitler and the goals of Nazi Germany? How much did he agree, disagree with? And it's really interesting to me that Rommel is one of the very small number of German generals that we really know about, or at least are understood in, in popular knowledge of the Second World War. And how many of them have had films made about them? I, I think, I'm sure there are smaller films, but I don't know of any other films made about German generals, certainly not positive ones like that. And Finally, you know, as with many of our influencers, there's a really interesting nuanced story about brilliant versus terrible, good versus bad. And I think maybe that's the thing that gives me most comfort as we try to think about what makes great leaders. There is no perfect leader, I think, whether right. you're Oppenheimer whether you're John Boyd, whether you're a naive Leonard Cheshire at times, we're not looking for perfection, but we're looking for those miscellaneous magical ingredients that gets people to follow us, that that allows us to see the opportunities that others don't and allows us to fundamentally capture the 10,000 men and then capture 10,000 more men and capture 10,000 more men like that. So that was Sorry. that was my takeaway. And I, yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed learning just and, and maybe scratching the surface a little bit more. Well, well, thank you, Chris, because I have, yeah, I've certainly learned a huge amount more about Rommel. Um, uh, and it's, it's really starting to get me to think about the the linkages again between the mythology and the person the situation they're in i think for me there are three takeaways that are you, you can abstract away from the second world war and those takeaways stand out to me as as the resounding lessons of what we can learn from rommel and that is seizing the initiative and taking risk so understand the situation you're in and empower people to go and do things because more often than not doing something taking risk is going to put you in an advantageous position don't stifle innovation of subordinates he wasn't restricted as a junior commander he was arguably quite restrictive later on um and so i would say allow allow people's flair allow people's understanding of the problem when they're at the coal phase, when they're doing operations to make decisions. So empower people to do that and don't, don't stifle them. And, and, I, and with that, I think learn as you are transitioning from being that coal face decision maker to where you are being an operational decision maker, stepping back to look at how you can empower other people rather than, trying to do everything yourself and then finally we've said this before yeah the power of not being a dick we've said this really really clearly on a few of our podcasts if you are genuinely decent and i don't mean 
you know, as a whole person, clearly Rommel, a deeply flawed individual with some quite abhorrent views of the world. But day to day, if you treat people in a way that people respect, in a way that people appreciate, then you get a lot out of it and you get, it goes a long, long way. So the, 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 the paradox of a deeply racist Nazi commander being seen as, you know, a, a, an honourable honorable gentleman, a honourable warrior, comes from the fact that you know, day to day he was he was making decisions that were the right decisions. So the idea not to kill commandos is probably it makes no tactical sense if you because the, the order to kill them isn't don't kill them. The order is don't kill them when they've been captured. Well, if you've captured them anyway, you've you've made the tactical success, and actually there's there's no benefit other than the sending of the message. So, yeah, don't be a dick. Don't stifle innovation of subordinates. Seize the initiative. Well, there you go. That is a perfect way to finish it. And I have to admit, on my bingo card for a podcast about Rommel, the the takeaway, don't be a dick, was not one I expected, but actually (laughs) I certainly agree with Thank you for your contributions on that, Gareth. As always, it's it's actually particularly useful where I've been staring at this for a while now for you to be able to sort of read back, I think is another really useful thing. Anyway, thank you for sticking with us so long. I know this one's been a longer one, but I think there was so much of a story to tell and I hope we told it in in an interesting and illuminating way. Um, We are on uh, Twitter at Battling With Biz with a Z. Um, If you have suggestions for future influencers or ideas or questions or comments, or frankly, you disagree with us, then please email us or obviously message us on Twitter, but very with short messages or email us on battlingwithbusiness at gmail.com. Please go back and listen to previous episodes. I think we're going to have to, we've talked about merch and t-shirts. One of those is going to have to be in a previous episode we talked about. And we have indeed, you know, John Boyd as an influencer, Ooda Loop, um, all of these topics. Please go back and look at our back catalogue. There's um, more than 30, I think it's probably 35 or 36 now, episodes for you to go back to. And lastly, please share with your friends. We are really keen and excited to sort of accelerate how we're finding this group of people who, who share this interest in these topics. So please share. But for now... Thank you very much for joining us. And Gareth, thank you very much for um, letting me go away and learn a bit more about Rommel. Um, well, and we'll see you. you all very soon. Yeah, wonderful. Cheerio.